If you don't know that much about quantum computing, there's no need to feel bad. You are far from alone. In November of 2019, Jack Hittery, who is affiliated with Google and is the author of Quantum Computing, an Applied Approach, said that he believed only 800 people in the world have the expertise needed to truly understand how to apply quantum algorithms. Some of those people work at Seek, a quantum computing company headquartered in Elmsford, New York, with facilities in London and Naples, Italy. Seek's approach to building a quantum computer is quite unique and offers a roadmap for scalable application-based quantum computers, which can be leveraged to solve some of the world's greatest challenges. This is a series of interviews published by that company. In this episode, Seek Creative Director Frederick Karlstrom speaks to John Levy, Seek CEO, about the origins of Seek and its unique approach to building a scalable quantum computer. If you want to know more about Seek and the work they do to make computers for the quantum age, you can visit them at seek.com. Now the conversation with Seek CEO and co-founder, John Levy. Hi. Hey, good morning. We're here again. We're here again. <laughs> Tell us where we are. First off, we're in Elmsford, New York, and we're here at in Clearbrook Road, and this is a new facility that we built primarily uh, as a corporate headquarters, but also as a millikelvin testing center. So this is enabling us to be able to test our chips at very low temperature. So all superconductors operate at low temperature, we're in 4K, something like that. But our circuits for our application-specific quantum computers are operating at uh, around 10 to 20 millikelvin, which is colder than the temperature of space. So what's the benefit of having this testing in the same space as your as your headquarters? Well, it's not so much that our testing needs to be near our headquarters, although that's always good because it's just more of an integrated operation. But across the street from us at 175 is our chip foundry. So the idea of being able to design and fabricate our circuits and then literally walk across the street and be able to put chips in our millikelvin testing devices enables us to have a much, much better workflow and really speed up the whole process of what we're doing. So tell me about Seek. So really the history of Seek is something like this. Um, I was the chair of a company called Hypris, which itself had roots at IBM. Oleg was the CTO at Hypris. And we worked together for roughly 10 years. And we decided at some point that it made sense strategically to split the operation so that one would work in the RF domain for government purposes, and the other would work in high-speed and quantum computing for commercial purposes. And we knew that we couldn't keep everything together and be, have each group you know, kind of achieve what the best it could possibly do. So in April of 2019, we actually formalized that split. We started Seek, and within, oh gee, a, you know, a month or two, we actually brought in our first investors and capitalized the company, and we were able to move forward. Tell me what, uh, what SEEK stands for. SEEK stands for Scalable Energy Efficient Quantum Computing. When we first started it, we thought it would maybe superconductive energy efficient, but it was really more scalable was the important part. And we're scalable because of the nature of the architecture that we have. We're energy efficient because of the core technology that we're using. And of course, we're in quantum computing. So we like the idea of SEEK as also expressing our own kind of journey towards building something which is truly transformational. And so we are seeking to do that. Somebody recently referred to all of us here as seekers, and I kind of like that. So what do you do here? What's your job? Like, obviously, I know your title. What is a day in the life of John Levy? 
I have great partners. I have Oleg Mukhanov as our CTO. I have Matt Hutchings as our chief product officer. And so one of the things that I can talk about is what I don't have to do. So I don't have to chart the technical direction of our company. I don't have to work on charting the core product areas of our company. So what I can focus on are the larger strategic issues on the one hand, and then working on things like recruiting, on raising capital, on brand building, and really trying to create a cohesive culture, particularly because we have locations in New York and in London and in Naples, and we have people from all different backgrounds. We have uh, uh, some who are on the quantum side, some on the SFQ side, some on design, some on in our foundry work, some in testing, some theoretical, some experimental. We have all kinds of ways of, of you know, kind of bringing everyone together. And I think that's really, to me, it's the, it's the culture and, and making sure that we have all the resources that we need and then helping to chart a strategic direction at a high level. So talk more about that, the process. The, so you have all these diverse people from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. How do you go about getting them all to sort of work in one direction? Well, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question because people do have different experiences and different backgrounds and different areas of expertise. And one of the things that we have done is that we instituted a program where essentially we're all educating each other on what we do and what our backgrounds are and what our expertise is. So that, for example, because you know, our SFQ classical circuits have to interact with quantum circuits, well, our quantum people need to understand a lot more about SFQ design and fabrication and vice versa. So it's really important that we do that. And we do that just by educating each other, talking about the results that we have, and even forming these little teams of people who are, who are collaborating on this. So, for example, you know, our lead SFQ designer, Alex, works with our lead quantum designer, Caleb, and they're getting to know not just each other, but they're getting to know, you know the work that the other one is doing and beginning to realize how the combination of these things is the real secret sauce of what we're doing. In your life, what are the different things that have brought you to this place that you can figure out how to like bring all these things together? Is there a journey in your own life? Uh, one thing is, you know, just for the last, let's say, call it 20 years, you know, I've been working in uh, in venture capital and and working with lots of small companies and helping them to scale up and having to address a lot of these kinds of issues. So there's a certain kind of pattern recognition that comes with having done that. And then prior to that, I was the CEO of a computer vision company where we had a similar sense of you know, people with different backgrounds were having to work with hardware and software and firmware and all the complications of that, um, having, you know, thinking about chip design. And so having played in all of these sandboxes over the years, it feels comfortable for me to be able to do this. And it seems, in some respects, a lot of the things are kind of obvious. The nuances have to do with the people and have to do with, you know, the culture and making all of that work. But the sort of structural parts of it seem pretty straightforward to me. So obviously all the different things that people are doing are all complicated in their own right. Yeah. Uh, and so the combination is even more complicated. Like, sure, sure, sure. How do you, what's the process for synthesizing information? You mentioned this meeting, but synthesizing information and also kind of keeping 
sort of information within the structure so that you don't miss something. How do you guys cultivate? Right, so how do we kind of keep it all together, right? I mean, with all of the complexity and every one of the activities that we have. And remember that we're also in three different locations, fundamentally. And so, you know, I think this all comes down to communications and making sure that people are reporting to each other and that we're, you know, every Friday we put our, all of our results out there for each other and we discuss it and they're really open-ended discussions. And the funny thing is that we have really, because of our locations, we've really put a, an emphasis on connectivity and on that kind of communications. And sometimes we keep video cameras open, you know, all the time and people just wander by and, and have those kind of almost like, you know, water cooler conversations, except they're happening between, you know, Naples and London, for example. And so that kind of communications is really what's, I think, essential to, to keeping everything, you know, on target and moving forward. So you've had a great long career in technology. Do you have any heroes? Are there any people who've really sort of inspired you to kind of start your company or run your company a certain way? There are people along the way who've really been inspirational for me. I remember at Harvard Business School, there was a professor there who was pretty new at the time named Jim Cash, and he was working on IT when we were working with, you know, computers that we shared between Harvard and MIT, and he was really helpful in me thinking about moving forward in this area. David Liddell, I worked at Interval Research, which is a think tank set up by Paul Allen in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, and David Liddell ran it, and David Liddell had been one of the crucial people at Xerox PARC, and I learned an awful lot about from David about working with heterogeneous teams and making sure that you're giving people all the space to be successful and not micromanaging and letting people really do the work that they're great at. I think he once talked about it as the elegance to sit back and watch. And I think that's important to be able to do that. Pitch Johnson, who is the main investor, largest investor in Hypris and formerly the board chair before I was, you know, a pioneer in Silicon Valley in the venture capital world, helped to start some of the, you know, seminal companies in the Valley and I think even started the National Venture Capital Association. And, you know, Pitch has, I think, you know, pretty unerring business judgment, but mostly he has a good ethical view. And I think he kind of has intuitively knows what's the right thing to do. And learning from Pitch, you know, being on a board with him for, you know, 10, 12 years and kind of observing that behavior is really inspirational for me. You mentioned elegancy. You said the other day, don't hide complexity, make it more elegant. I don't know where that came from. Was that you, your quote, or was that something? Well, you know, elegance is a funny term because in, in things like chip design, people talk about elegant design, or in technology in general, where you're essentially trying to bring a better idea for something, and in doing it, it often is a simplification of the underlying technology. It's just a different architecture. Being able to work on things in that more elegant fashion, I think is core to what we're doing. So if you think about, you know, what current generation quantum computers look like, and I don't mean the housing, but, but really the guts of them, and you, when you look inside of them, I mean, it's, they're, they're sort of Frankenstein machines. And what we're trying to do is to take a lot of that complexity and, I mean, sort of impossible scalable uh, structures and bring it down to the chip level so that suddenly, you know, racks of equipment and tens if not hundreds if not thousands of cables and, and all kinds of things just disappear.
and we're making systems which are fundamentally more sort of minimal in their design and therefore sort of more elegant. I hear you say a lot sort of this idea of solving real problems. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what we mean by that? Like so in quantum computing, one of the big challenges is to think about how to solve real problems and, and to be useful and practical. And where we are today in our industry is that I think we can show demonstrations, bits of what could be practical, and which are kind of promising for, um, you know, if we're able to scale, to get to the point where we're actually useful at, say, a large enterprise level. The question is whether or not the the solutions that people are coming forward with on a demonstration level basis have the potential to scale to the complexity of the actual problem. And I think that's where our, our architecture comes in, which is that we are fundamentally scalable and designed for that. We're designed to actually meet the complexity of these problems at a very high level. And that's what we're trying to build here at Seek. So just to say that, you know, scalability in quantum computing, it's sort of seductive. People would say like, oh, it's, that's easy. It's just the number of, of qubits you have. And yet it's not the case because you really need to think about scalability from a system perspective. And you need to think about it from time, cost, energy, complexity, ability to operate, interference. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And if you're not solving all of those things, you're not really solving it in the way that it's going to need to be solved in the way that it happened in classical computing. So that we went from, you know, the ENIAC, an impossibly complex but functional digital computer, into, you know, the modern iPhone. There's a really obvious scalability question. So, for example, today, if you're working with superconductive qubits, you need somewhere between one and four, let's call it two or three, um, very specialized coax cables to actually read out control and maybe operate a tunable coupler for a qubit. Each one of these things has to connect down to millikelvin, uh, which is, you know, negative 460 something degrees Fahrenheit, all the way up to ambient temperature. It has to, it has interconnects, so all those have to work. These things cost between $1,000 and $5,000. So, okay, on a small number of qubits, let's say you're at 50 or 100 or even 1,000, you can deal with, I don't know, a few thousand of these cables. But imagine you want to build a quantum computer with a million qubits. You're not going to be able to run a computer with millions of these cables. And oh, by the way, if they're costing between $1,000 and $5,000, it's going to be in incredibly expensive. And then over time, they're going to fail. And so how are you going to even maintain them? So just looking at cables as one parameter to think about, um, I think, you know, creates a kind of daunting prospect for true scalability. So another element of scalability is, is around energy. And so we have to think about it in two perspectives. From the macro perspective, um, imagine for a moment that you wanted to build a massively complex classical computer, like an X-scale computer. Well, the Department of Energy ran a study a couple of years ago that showed that at certain sizes, you'd need to power it with a, you know, a nuclear power plant the size of Fukushima. And obviously, that's not a practical scenario. But the fact is, because quantum computers can scale exponentially, it gives you the opportunity to build incredibly powerful computers that could fit in the room that we're sitting in and that would require you know, a, small, a relatively small amount of electricity. 
But the energy that we think about from at, at Seek is actually in the system itself. Today's system for, again, for superconductive electronics, those kinds of qubits are controlled by microwave pulses. And microwave pulses are inherently energetic, and therefore they're uh, translated into heat. And that heat is going into the very chamber where you're trying to keep qubits cold. Well, that's fine, again, for a small number of qubits. But as you increase the amount of qubits and you increase the amount of microwave energy going in there to control them, you're actually flooding the dilution refrigerator with heat, which runs counter to what you need to have stable qubits. And so that's a, a way in which you know, energy becomes your enemy. In our case, because we're working with single-flux quantum pulses that operate at orders of magnitude lower levels of power, and because we're all digital and we're operating at picosecond speed, we can actually scale in that environment. Let's talk about scale in one other context. Why does it need to scale? Why is, why is scale, I mean, it's obvious, but tell me why scalability is important. Quantum computers need to scale so that we can get to the point where we answer a new set of questions. So the first set of questions to build a quantum computer was, could you build one? Would it work? Could you run software? And could it do anything that a classical computer can't? And I think Google's helped to respond to the last one, and certainly other companies have responded to the first two questions. But the next set of questions have everything to do with you know, solving real-world practical problems. And in order to do that, we know that we need you know, longer coherence time, we need you know, more quantum resources available, we need error correction, we need all of these things to be able to, to really see the true value of a quantum computer. Without that, we're not going to be able to realize any of those gains. Talk to me about the difference between so application-specific versus general. So in an ideal world, we would want to build a you know, an error-corrected, fault-tolerant, general-purpose quantum computer that, that scaled, that, you know, with lots of quantum resources. That would be terrific. But it's going to take time to do that. And so we are, our strategy is a little bit different. Our strategy is to, and, and this really, by the way, came through discussions that we had with quantum software developers, who basically said there are no real quantum computers that are actually designed to support their particular algorithm and the calls that they need in their applications. And we said, well, you know, we have a chip boundary, we have designers, we can give you low-level controls over things that would be very, very difficult for you to get in a conventional quantum computer. Why don't we custom design quantum computers with you, with our end user in mind, so that we can actually create application-specific quantum computers but unlike an ASIC, where you're, you know, in a, the classical domain, where you're trying to just take a limited group of resources and functionality and put it on, you know, chip to make it super, super cheap, our idea is to turn it on its head and do that for one computer, but make it into a design that can scale. So we support all of what your algorithm needs for our end user application, and we do it in a scalable architecture. So again, we're taking this idea of kind of custom, you know, ASIC style, and instead of making it broadly distributed over lots and lots of devices very inexpensively, we're focusing on one and then scaling up that in terms of the ultimate quantum resource that's available to solve a very specific business problem. And we think by doing that, we can actually accelerate our time to market to getting to, again, the scalable answer uh, to the questions that are posed by our customers. 
So part of the issue around building a general purpose, you know, a fault tolerant general purpose quantum computer is that you're building it for, for absolutely everybody and for all applications. But what we find is, is that you know, software developers will tell us they don't need all of those things. They need a subset of those things, and there aren't enough of the subset of what they need, and then there are things that they don't need. And so what we're trying to do in our application-specific strategy is co-design our computers to give them exactly what they need, and then figure out how to scale that up. So energy efficient, we talked about macro, we talked about linearly, but we have uh... Amdahl's law. Yeah. Because that was a genesis also for, for you yeah. to figure this out. So, yeah. so let's talk about uh, energy efficiency, macro system. When we think about data centers, and you know, eventually we're going to have a quantum computer in a data center, and you know, it's going to have cloud resources and all of that. Um, we're already beginning to see some of that uh, occurring in our industry. The fact is that one of the things that's interesting about data centers is that the speed of the data center is gated by essentially the slowest process. And if you can speed up the slowest process, you can then speed up the entire data center. This is uh, embodied in Amdahl's law, and it's something that we learned with our collaboration with IBM a number of years ago. And so, in fact, that's actually how we began thinking about what we're doing and said, well, gee, if we could actually put in, for example, fast classical resources into a quantum computer, we're actually taking the best of both in terms of the fast part of a data center, because our circuits operate much faster than classical data centers, and we're doing it in the context of a quantum computer. So you could actually go back and forth and have access to both resources. So if you're a, a designer, for example, an application designer, you might have a quantum front end that feeds into a classical back end. Well, in our system, you don't have to go up to the cloud for those resources. You have the fastest resources you can get in our system on, on a classical basis, not just on the quantum basis, but on a classical basis in our architecture. Talk to me about the importance of having a foundry. So it was really interesting when we were thinking about spinning out C from Hypris and trying to figure out, you know, who did we need and what did we need and all of that. And I was insistent, as was Oleg, that we needed to include our chip foundry. And the reason that we do is because, first off, architecture is entirely chip-based. That's number one. Number two is we have the most sophisticated, multi-layer, superconductive uh, chip process, certainly in the country and probably in the world. And we, we have it. It's mature. We have the team to run it. We have the IP for it. And we know how to, how to grow it. And being able to literally have it across the street from us means that we can have our designers come up with designs every week, and we can put wafers into our foundry and have them come out, and we're no longer dependent on some third party uh, where we don't have control over the timing, the process, the quality, or anything. It makes it so that our process is, is you know, super efficient, and it gives us, frankly, an unfair advantage. Not only that, once we have designs we like, we now have the ability to manufacture them. And you know, we live in a world in which there's a chip shortage anyway, and working in this very specialized area, how can you depend on anyone else to be able to produce these chips? 
And just to say, we also produce chips for, you know, the Department of Energy and NASA and other groups and commercial companies and, and academic groups because they recognize that we are a world leader in the manufacturing of superconductive circuits. What do you see as the main challenges for, for SEEK and for the industry as a whole, for quantum? What are the, what are the challenges that you see? Look, we are in the, you know, from thinking about the challenges in the quantum world, you have to think that we're really at the beginning of this journey. And, you know, people are only now coming up with, you know, different quantum modalities, if you were, quantum platforms. So, uh, you know, there's in photonics and trapped ions and, you know, cold atoms and obviously superconductive qubits and our, our kind of work. But there, and there are more to be discovered. And so, the idea of just this expanding this space is, you know, is daunting. And then trying to focus on each and every one of them and making them work and making them work in, in a practical way, in a scalable way, and, and in something that's useful for a, for a customer is really the next big challenge. And let's talk about the last leg, if you will, of the, the sort of the things that really make us unique is the experience. We're a company where we design chips, we manufacture them, we test them, we integrate them into systems, we're doing quantum work, we're doing classical work, we're in New York, we're in Italy, we're in the UK, we have people from a remarkable number of countries, and bringing that all together is really, I think, in some respects, the key. And it's really the people behind all of that that makes that happen. You know, we've really built a very collaborative work culture and a place where people enjoy working with each other and learning from each other. I think there's a huge, huge premium on, on what we learn from each other. And we do it, you know, we do it in lots of different ways. I mean, a lot of it is learning by doing, right? But we actually, you know, teach each other. And I feel privileged to be the beneficiary of all of that, since, you know, I've got the smartest people in the room, and that's not me. Uh, and so I get to hear from all of them, and they get to hear from each other. And I think that is really energizing and, and unique. Is that unique for SEEK, do you think, to, to have that kind of do the seminars and, and really like, because even yesterday, several people said, yeah, no, I didn't know anything about quantum physics. Right. Which made me feel better about myself. But and, uh, and when they started here, because they came from classical or right. is that unique to seek, would you say? Or is that something I, that lots of people do? Maybe. I know that lots of people, you know, they go to conferences, they participate in, you know, university events and things like that. I don't know how many people are as deliberate as we are about teaching each other what we do. I, I just, I just, I don't know. We, every, every week on Friday, uh, late morning, early afternoon, depending on what time zone you're in, in our company, we, everybody kind of gets up and it's, it's not like a stand-up. It's like people actually do, you know, kind of real presentations on the work that they've been doing and, and showing, you know, results. And what's so extraordinary is that we're not just hearing about you know, the work on our quantum team or our classical team or our foundry. It's the work that's happening among different teams of people and that kind of collaboration across all the different areas of what we do. I look forward to it every week, not only because I want to assess what, you know, either what problems we're having or what progress we're making or whatever, but just to hear the interchange of people and across, again, across disciplines, across geographies, et cetera. I mean, look, we're a small company, 
But the fact is, is that, you know, because we're a spin out, we have people who've been doing this a, a long time and who are, I mean, they are the world's leaders in some of these areas. And so it's, it is, again, a kind of privilege to hear from everybody and hear what they're doing. And even, you know, kind of a little bit of that kind of brainstorming that, ever ha that happens when people are asking questions about the results they're hearing. It's, you know, it, it's just an extraordinary experience. So talk to me a little bit about so the company as a whole and the, like, what is the vision, like, in, in your mind, sort of the picture of the future? What, what does it look like if, if, for you, for Seek? It's an interesting thing. We don't have in our lives, not all of us, have the opportunity to work on, on really world-changing ideas. They can be in the artistic realm, they can be in, in the political realm, or they can be in humanitarian or medical, in all these different areas. And I think we are, at, we are working at a company and in an industry that has the opportunity to do that. We are working on the next generation of computing. And it's the computing combining with things like, you know, uh, AI, machine learning, et cetera, that to me are going to be, you know, will be the paradigm for the rest of our century. And so we're able to, to do that. And being a pioneer in that area and building and creating a new architecture for this kind of computing is, is just, you know, it's groundbreaking from the way I look at it. And so that's really our vision, is to bring that architecture to life so that we can make truly scalable, useful, and practical quantum computing. The goal at SEEK is to try to build, initially, these application-specific quantum computers that we can build for, you know, for specific customers that would be the first time that companies are able to realize the, the potential of a quantum computer. How do you define the business that we're in? So, you know, when we think about the business model that, that we have, you know, our business model really is, you know, kind of quantum as a service and where we're using our platform. But it's a unique one because it's not a platform, again, that's initially at least a general purpose platform. It's a platform that we have built for individual customers. And we think that if we can solve a, a particular, you know, one problem for customer X, we should be able to solve two or three or four or five for that customer. And if we can solve, you know, for customer X, we should be able to, you know, solve that problem for customers Y and Z in the same industry. And so we think that we can build out from that. And eventually we start to work on things like uh, reconfigurable quantum computers. Think about sort of like a quantum FPGA. And then and only then we would think about building general purpose quantum computers when we think more about, you know, error correction and fault tolerance. So can you talk to me about who these customers are, or whether by name or by industry? So the verticals that we're focused on are well-matched for a few things. One is where we think there's the possibility of creating quantum advantage for a particular solution, where we think there is a good match for an algorithm or for an application that can, that can bring that to life and where the amount of quantum resources that are required to do that, at least at this early stage, are within sight. You know, they have to be kind of an investable time period. So, and so we think about things like quantum chemistry, new materials. We think about, about financial services, um, certain aspects of pharma, certain aspects of you know, optimization and logistics, uh, and even some areas around machine learning and AI. And those are really the verticals that we're focused on.
what's sort of the value proposition and sort of how do you add value to those clients? So what's really been interesting for us is that we have this deep engagement with some of these customers, by the way, many of whom or several of whom are, are our investors. And we did that deliberately because we wanted to make sure that we were really well aligned with what their interests were. So when we go and work with them, one of the first things that we're doing is we're leveraging work that they have done internally to help identify what they think are you know, really interesting, high-value problems that if they could solve, they can't solve classically, but if they could solve with a quantum computer, could unlock tremendous amount of value. We then try to understand that to make sure that though it looks like a quantum problem, really has a quantum solution to it. Because not every problem that you can't solve with a classical computer can you solve with a quantum computer. So it's got to be you know, really specific to something which we think we can do. We then, because we're not full stack, and we need to bring on a quantum application developer, we'll go hunting for, you know, in the, our community, for the right application partner. And we bring them in as part of our team to work with our end user and with us to come up with a solution that we think works algorithmically and that we can then build a design around here at Seek. It's that kind of engagement with you know, that collaboration that enables us to come up with an application-specific quantum computer. Let's talk a little bit about collaboration. Let's describe the stack. So when we first started thinking about the strategy of our company, one of the things that we considered was the idea of just going vertical and picking you know, some, let's call it quantum chemistry, or you know, my area that I wanted to do was you know, building a climate model, and just going and doing everything down from you know, starting at the quantum level, the qubit level, all the way up to the application space. And what we realized was that we really didn't have the expertise to develop things like operating systems or even an application. It just wasn't where our strength was. And we decided that what we should do, that what we were good at, was at the metal layer on up and getting to the point where we would develop firmware and that the firmware would be able to kind of plug into an operating system and the application layer. So we decided that we could build, we could work on, on qubits, on readout, control, error correction, we could work on um, classical coprocessing, and we could work on firmware and that we needed to be able to have that kind of focus. You know, we're not, you know, the largest company in the world and you have to decide what you're good at and what you're, in fact, what you think you're the best at. And so we're focused on just that. This idea that uh, walking the walk, talking the talk, sort of balance of... Uh, of what, of hype and reality? Hype and reality, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you work in the quantum space and you, you know, you, you go to a conference and you hear academicians or, you know, futurists or whatever talk about, you know, the world to come, it is very seductive to realize that, you know, sort of quantum computing could be the answer to, you know, new drugs and, you know, new batteries and, and everything, the, you know, the world to come. And the problem with that is that though that is what we're aiming for, there is the you know, cold hard reality that says, well, what are you delivering? What is it that you can show? What can you demonstrate? What can you deliver to a customer? And what can you do in a reasonable period of time? You know, we are not a, uh, a think tank. We're not the research division of a large company. We're not you know, academicians. 
we are a commercial company and therefore we must deliver useful products to our customers in a reasonable time frame. And so we're constantly working on trying to kind of reduce expectation and and again, it's part of the reason that we're not full stack. It's part of the reason we're not building a general purpose quantum computer and we're doing application specific because what we're trying to do is to reduce the very things that we need to deliver so that we can actually deliver on those benefits and those products. There's obviously an increase of a number of investments in this, in this field. There's more talk, more, more conferences. Why now, would you say? Why do you think this is going you know, it's funny because I've been working in venture capital for a really long time, and 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 when venture when I first started working in venture capital, we we made investments in these kinds of things. Now, maybe not a whole new computing, uh, you know, idea, but you know what we now call deep tech, right? Deep tech investing or frontier tech investing has become kind of a new theme for companies, and yet, from you know where I stand, that's where venture capital was. And much of venture capital has become focused on, on really more marketing-oriented solutions than technological solutions. And where business models um, are seeing the greatest amount of innovation. Um, but we now are in a time where you can actually do enormous innovation in things like quantum computing and AI, for example, and where that becomes investable. And I think that venture capital funds realize that when there is this opportunity to create whole new platforms, they can create whole new industries. So in the venture world, you know, if you think about quantum computing, it's not just can you build a quantum computing company. There are going to be chip companies and memory companies and, and there are going to be networking companies and software companies and operating systems companies and cloud-based systems, et cetera, et cetera. There is an entire world of investment possibility that's going to be unlocked by building out a quantum infrastructure, if you will. So one of the things that I discovered when we first started raising capital for Seek was, you know, our presentation was a pretty technical presentation because it was based on a lot of work that we had done before. Again, we're a spin out, right? So we can talk a lot about single flux quantum technology, we can talk about our manufacturing, and we can talk about circuit designs and things that we've actually already built. What's interesting is how difficult the diligencing of all that was. And yet, when we started talking to corporate VCs, there were people within those corporations who had a deep understanding of what we were doing. And we kind of unlocked that, and we started seeing that with companies like Merck and LG and some of the others, where they really had people on staff who had a fundamentally strong understanding of, of what we were building, what we have built and what we're building. And so we found that it's kind of an equally good opportunity for us to work with both corporate venture capital funds as well as you know, traditional financial venture capital funds because you know, in some ways the corporate venture capital funds can go even deeper in their technical diligence. If you succeed, if Seek succeeds, what are the impacts on the world? What's the benefit to the world? If we're successful in what we're doing and being able to scale a quantum computer and a hybrid quantum classical computer up to the, as I say, the complexity of the problems that we're trying to address. I mean, you know, this is again where like, you know, you have to pierce your own hype balloon. 
But you know, the thing I think about, for example, I'm constantly thinking about the idea of building a model of climate where we're able to take you know, an enormous number of variables and we can begin to think about how we as stewards of our planet can be better at our job and how we can be you know, less impactful and more strategic in how we coexist with nature. But you, know, you can play that game all through and think about you know, new materials, energy, you know, pharmaceuticals. I mean, you think about pharmaceuticals and say, it's one thing to develop a, a new compound for a drug. It's something else to say, I could run uh, an entire drug testing program in a computer and where we could test out you know, not only the safety and efficacy of it, but we can actually see about all the interactions with other drugs because we would have built models of all those other drugs. And we can see all of that before it, you know, it's, it's ever tried out on anyone. And so there are all kinds of extraordinary opportunities. Will I ever live or any of us ever live long enough to see that? That's another question, but that's what we're building. That is the, that's the foundation of the thing that we're building. What was the thing that brought you to this project? What was the thing that made it, was the most interesting about, about starting to see? You know, it's, I, I've been making investments in all kinds of technology companies. I've been on, I don't know, maybe 20 boards of companies, et cetera, et cetera, things like that. And I always talk to people about, before I'm making an investment, you know, is it, a, is it a feature, is it a product, is it a platform, is it a company? And trying to answer those questions, and oftentimes people come forward with things which really aren't, you know, real companies. They're not really investable to build a company. There is a category beyond that, where what you're saying is that you're literally building a new industry. And I think that the handful of companies around the world that are attempting to build scalable quantum computers are all trying to build a new industry. That's what we're able to do if we're gonna be successful. And that opportunity doesn't happen often. The entire reset of an industry is, you know, it's like going from the industrial revolution to the digital revolution. It's just, it's like that. And so that opportunity is I think what's attracted everybody in this company. And I think, frankly, it's why people are you know, starting these companies. It's why some of the largest you know, technical companies around the world, why they're all working on this and why there's so much interest from an investment perspective. So we decided to commission a report around deep tech investing in large corporations to see, for example, what their interest would be in investing in things like quantum computing and how they would bring that kind of in-house, how would they incorporate quantum computing in their own company. And we did that and discovered some extraordinary things. I think the, you know, two of the most important ones were that people were identifying a very specific business problem they wanted to solve and the fundamental fear that their competitors were doing the same thing and that they were behind. And the survey was, was super interesting. You know, one of the things that came out was that a majority of companies were actually trying to solve a very specific business problem. And it's exactly what we've seen at Seek in our discussions with companies like Merck and LG, for example. But there were some surprising things as well. So for example, one of the things that they were talking about why they would uh, collaborate with a startup or even invest in a startup 
had everything to do with IP and with the technical resources, things like testing and manufacturing, the kinds of resources, in fact, that we have. And we wouldn't have thought that. But apparently, you know, IP and the ability to actually build out the deep tech technology were two of the highest categories. You were giving advice to a senior executive at a large corporation that has FOMO. Or, right. You know, what, what would your advice be for, for him or her to sort of get into to deep tech and quantum specifically? Yeah, I think that bringing together the, you know, people across different parts of your organization and try to understand what opportunities exist and what technical gaps there were with those opportunities and then seeing if there was a, a way in which quantum computing could bridge that, I think would be you know, a really, really good start. It's important to try to understand what's high value and what is simply impossible to achieve with classical computing. And so we see this, by the way, in financial services companies, in materials companies, in chemical companies, in pharmaceutical companies, they're all doing this process. And we're having some you know, really fruitful discussions with all of them. If you're thinking about getting into deep tech, or you're thinking about expanding your sort of focus on that, what would you say the first step should be? I think the first step in thinking about a deep tech solution, and particularly quantum, would be to answer the question, why? Why is it that we need to do this? What opportunities are there? What gaps are there? What solutions may there be? But you know, really what's motivating us to do it? You know, is it FOMO? Is it fear of missing out? Is it because we know that there's something we're working on and there's a dead end and we know what the value of that is? Are there areas that we've wanted to grow into and this gives us a new opportunity to do it? I think that there are lots of different whys, you know, different answers to that question. Branding. Tell me a little bit about that. Why are we building a brand? Why, when did you see that that was important? I think the first step, whether they know it or not, every company has a brand. And whether it's they've defined it or it's just to sort of become whatever it is just through natural evolution and they don't even really think about it, there is a meaning to what these, all these companies are and who they are and what they do. We are trying to be thoughtful about that brand and really to construct it. And one of the reasons that we're doing this is because we know that we exist in a very collaborative kind of ecosystem where we're building a platform on which we have a number of other builders. We have people who are helping you know, middleware. We have uh, operating system companies. We have application developers. And that ecosystem, I think, needs to kind of cohere in this very collaborative whole. And I think the idea of building a brand that describes that ecosystem and that sense of collaboration is really key. So how are we going about doing that? Well, one of the things that we're doing is that we are holding interviews with some of our key partners and key collaborators in all the different areas, whether it's working with Qubit manufacturers or software developers or operating system companies or some of our customers, etc., and really understanding their perception of what we're doing and their part in what we're doing so that we are actually crafting a brand kind of from the ground up and something that feels more organic to the kinds of collaborations that we're trying to create. 
But follow up to that, you just hired a creative director for a deep tech brand. Like, why did you do that? You know, we're good at what we're good at, right? We're good at designing quantum circuits and classical circuits and fabricating things and engineering systems and everything. This is not an area where we have a lot of expertise and we understand that if we don't have it, but it's important to us, we need to bring it in. And so that's why we have been spending time and energy and money. When you talk about the platform, you obviously talk about sort of the actual place within the ecosystem, but there's also the, the sort of the brand aspect of that. You know, we're, we're seeking to collaborate with all these different people. Right. How do you think about that role? Like, are there metaphors or other companies in the past that have, have had that position that, you, that, that seeks in? Let's put it this way. If, if Seek was a magazine, mm -hmm. what would it be about? Like, what would it be called? Who would be on the cover? What would it be? It's funny, you know, because, you know, we're very focused on what we do. Yeah. And on the other hand, we're doing it all across the world and we have all these people. There's something about, about you know, people from all different backgrounds and different geographies and everything that would be contributing to this, to this magazine. But it would be a, a very focused magazine. It would not be, you know, like a, you know, lifestyle thing or something that's really, really broad. It would be a very focused thing that would be something that, you know, enormous amounts of inputs from places that would be unexpected even might come together so that you get a new perspective on a particular issue because we're collaborative, we're global, we are multimodal in some respects, we are building an ecosystem. And so it's, it's really about all of these inputs from so many different places coming in to build something which is very specific and very much meant to be you know, useful and practical. So maybe it's a how-to magazine. Uh, I don't know, but something that you could actually translate from what you're reading into something that would actually be, you know, implementable. So let's go back to the, the idea that we talked about before about being customized and being scalable. Yeah. Because right? I love that thought. Yeah. Like, talk to me as if, as if I was a child. So imagine you wanted to go out and buy an article of clothing. You could go to a mass market retailer and find something off the rack, which they probably make millions of and probably pretty inexpensive, and you could do that. Or you could go to a tailor and have a bespoke version of the thing you wanted. Fits your body perfectly, it's the material you want, the design you want, and it's an N of one. So, you know, that's what you could do. Well, that's essentially what we're doing by building an application-specific quantum computer. However, and I think this is the important part, is that we can scale that. Now, what does scaling mean? Scaling means that we can address all of the issues of system complexity, the number of qubits, the amount of energy, the connectivity, RF interference, power levels, cost, etc. And all of those are considerations that we take into consideration for, you know, for scaling this, again, custom-made, application-specific quantum computer. Let's talk for just a minute about things that led up to what we're doing. Some people think about the development of quantum computing, for example. They'll look at it academically and they'll look at theories of, you know, quantum mechanics and they'll see, you know, how all of that occurred. And that's a really, really important thread. The way I like to think about it is by looking historically at the development of classical computing. So if we think about classical computing, 
you can talk, you know, go back to, you know, Babbage in the 18, in the early part of the 19th century, building mechanical computers, and then thinking about some of the first digital computers that were built like ENIAC in 1946. But these were, you know, essentially, they were devices, they were experimental devices that had, you know, real limitations. So the question was, how did we go from all of that to, you know, the iPhone that you, you know, have in front of you that we all use? And what it took were a series of very large-scale innovations. So, for example, it required the invention of the transistor. It required, you know, at places like Bell Labs. It required the invention of the integrated circuit at places like Fairchild. It required um, memory, new memory devices, and microprocessors that came out of companies like Intel. And then it took the systems companies to be able to take all of those ideas and integrate them into something that was useful and practical. And so it's those series of innovations that occurred that led to, in fact, the modern you know, classical computer that we have today. So it's going to take an analogous series of innovations to build a modern quantum computer. And that's why we're going from discrete components, lots of cables for connectivity, analog to digital to analog devices, highly energetic systems, et cetera, to systems which are based on a more elegant design of superconductors, of quantum modules, all digital, all operating at low temperature and high speed. It's interesting to think also about going beyond the development of the platforms of being able to build a digital computer to think about how they were designed, what the architecture was. So some of the very earliest digital computers were built towards the end of World War II. These computers were designed with one very specific thing in mind, which was to track missile trajectories so that they could actually had rockets that had you know, guidance systems, or they could see what incoming rockets you know, might do. And so the point was these were, in essence, application-specific classical computers. So when we think about an application-specific computer, it really has its roots in a time when people were developing a computer to do a single thing that they cared an awful lot about. And at the end of World War II, when people were trying to break codes and track missiles, that's what they cared about. And that's what those computers were built for, and only that purpose. So the idea of building an application-specific classical computer essentially is what's inspired us to build application-specific quantum computers, where we can solve a high-value problem for a highly motivated customer. Let's talk about our investors. So, you know, it's one thing to raise money for a, a startup company or a spin-out company as we are. And it's something else to think about doing it strategically for the product you're making, for the field you're in, for the customers you have, for the plan you have. And I think we have an almost idealized group of investors, an ideal group of investors. So in our seed round, it was led by Blue Yard, based in Berlin. And in, I think it was 2017, they brought together leaders in the quantum community from academia, from industry, from large companies, small companies. It was moderated by a guy from The Economist. I mean, it was, you know, it was just as high level a group as you could possibly have. 
And what was interesting was that their strategy going in was to invest in a quantum software company. And by the end of the conference, they were convinced that that was not going to happen until you could actually have the platforms that software companies could build you know, applications on, and that they needed to solve the core problems of those platforms. And we met. So that was great. And not only that, but they had a series of advisors and and you know diligence partners who were you know who are excellent and have frankly our value add and so they're a perfect lead investor we also had a group called cambium cambium was led by well one of the guys leading it was a guy named david mooring who had run quantum computing essentially for iarpa a group who we had collaborated with when we were at hypris so we knew them well and, and he was the former CEO of IonQ, another quantum startup company. And so he had the purview of all the quantum companies in the United States and probably mostly in the world. And the first investment they made was in Seek. We also had a group called the Partnership Fund for New York City, led by Maria Gotch. And what's exciting about having their involvement with us is that not only are they supportive of what's going on in New York, but also they have an LP base, which is comprised of some of the leading companies in New York. And whether it's Goldman or KKR or Verizon or every one of the banks in New York City, it's an extraordinary group of LPs who we can actually have access to through their investments. And then finally, it was New Lab Ventures and New Lab is a, an extraordinary meeting spot, if you will, a facility in New York, it's a community really, of startup companies, but that have strong connections to major academic and commercial partners. And in fact, they've run, I think, three or four different quantum conferences at New Lab, sponsored by IBM, you know, University of Waterloo, which is a great academic center. I think Columbia and NYU did one. But the point of this is, this was our seed group. We then expanded to a Series A, which was led by EQT. And EQT Ventures, you know, EQT is the ninth largest private equity firm in the world, and EQT Ventures, one of the largest venture funds in Europe, has a strong industrial connection to companies that are in the, the Wallenberg sphere, um, companies like AstraZeneca and Ericsson and Electrolux and SAS and, and you know, SAB and many others that are relevant to us. And then lastly, we brought in two strategics. We brought in M Ventures, which is the venture capital side of Merck, and this is Merck in Darmstadt, Germany. I would call it the global Merck, which has you know, strong operations in material science, in pharmaceuticals, and in semiconductors, interestingly. And then LG in Korea, who had you know, nine operating divisions of the company doing a study around the use of quantum computing and opportunities that could exist to work with the company. So we're thinking about partnering with LG on a broad area uh, where LG Chem actually became an investor in our company. So as we look forward, we think about these kinds of investor relationships as being core to not only just bringing capital in, but are core to the customer base that we have for our application-specific quantum computers and really for building out the user base of our company. What indicators do you see in the market or what feedback are you seeing in the market and speaking about going out on this, mm -hmm. on this round? Right. Look, there, I think that as time goes on and companies are beginning to publish results, the idea that quantum computing isn't just an academic theory, 
but is a practical reality is becoming more obvious by the day. And therefore, instead of looking like you're investing in research, it now looks like you're investing in development and markets. And I think that's a signal that enables venture capital funds and even large private equity funds, frankly, and corporate venture capital funds to make some decisions about in terms of being able to invest, number one. And number two is I think there's a certain amount of self-interest where these companies are realizing that there are applications that are potentially extremely valuable to them. And therefore, they can imagine making investments and partnering with companies like Seek in order to realize those opportunities. I imagine that you're hiring a lot of people. Tell me, tell, me, yeah. uh, tell me about that a little bit. There was an article that appeared in the New York Times a couple of years ago where Google was talking about the number of people who could practically build a quantum computer. And I think they said that there was something like 800 people in the world. It is a highly, I don't know if that's the current number, it's probably bigger than that, but the point is, it's a highly competitive area, and we, like everyone else, are competing for a very limited you know, group of people with very specialized skills. That said, we are also competing for people who have these other skills around single-flux quantum, you know, superconductive electronics design, test, and manufacturing capabilities. So this is even a more specialized, you know, group of people. And so as we think about the kind of population of people we can recruit from, you know, it's a pretty select group. And, you know, we are hiring in all those categories. How do you go about finding these people? Well, you know, fortunately, because we, and I say we, I'm talking about literally everybody in our company, either through academics or through industry meetings or whatever, you know, we all have networks which are highly relevant to what we do. So there's a bit of a virtuous cycle in having people who do that. That's number one. Number two is we've had a strong uh, program of bringing in interns. And what we found when we were at Hypris, we might have 10 or 15 interns you know, per summer. And what we found was that most of the really, really promising interns became employees at Hypris. And we expect to do exactly the same thing at Seek. What's unique about, about Seek? What's the pitch? Like, you should come work here because we're this and that. I think that one of the things that we offer, because of the work that we do by marrying quantum technology and classical technology by marrying chip design and chip manufacturing is that we present a kind of interesting Venn diagram of capability that I think nearly everyone who we've talked to, who we've, you know, kind of target for employment or whatever, fully understands and appreciates. And it's really unique. You've said this idea of building tools inspired by nature. Can you talk a little bit about that? We, we think about discovery of core technologies, and I mean, like, let's go back really early, you know, things like the discovery of fire, and think about all the things that resulted from fire, from, you know, heating and from cooking and from, you know, transformation of materials and all kinds of things that came from that. And, you know, it's extraordinary how that has the effect on the world. And here we are developing a new kind of tool and a new kind of tool, interestingly, that may give us a deeper appreciation and understanding of the natural world around us. And I think that's the potentially kind of world-changing aspect of quantum computing, is that it is this yet again 
sort of massively important tool that we can use to better understand and to coexist with uh, the world that we live in. How would you explain what you do to a kid? When you were at a dinner party, you say what you do, what do you? Whenever anybody asks me the question, kind of what do you do, and I say, well, we're building a new kind of computer. Oh, what kind of computer is that? It's a quantum computer. What's that? And I almost always have to say the same thing, which is I contrast it with a classical computer. And a classical computer, I say to people, is built on switches, the way you have a light switch in a room, and you can just turn it off and on. It has two positions, you know what it does, and it's really, really simple. And that's essentially what's happening in a classical computer. You just got a lot, a lot of switches. And then I say, but imagine that I don't have a switch. Imagine I have an artificial atom. I have an artificial orbital, and it's a sphere, and there's a zero and a one, and there are you know, North Pole and South Pole, and I have all the positions in between, and that suddenly I have this opportunity of taking advantage of all of that information space. They go, well, what's that mean? And so I say, well, think about it this way. Take a leaf on a tree that's right outside here, and what's it made out of? Well, I don't know, stuff. I say, like, what stuff? Like molecules and atoms and subatomic particles and things like that. Is it made of switches? No. It's made of, let's call them atoms. I say, well, imagine that I could describe that sphere I told you about as an artificial atom, and that we're building artificial atoms instead of light switches. And the way that we're going to build our computer is such that we can assemble these artificial atoms together to form that leaf. Well, I can't do that with switches, but I can do it with artificial atoms. And those artificial atoms are called quantum bits or qubits. And quantum computers are made of qubits. What's the one question that you feel like you were never asked about what you do, or, or, or by me for that matter, that you, that you feel like, is there, is there a question that you feel like? No, you know, is there a question? Um, is there a question, or, or maybe that you feel like it isn't being talked about in the industry, or paid enough attention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of people say, like, I've read about quantum computing, you know, I've heard about quantum computing, and people who are even pretty well educated about it, and they always want to know, so which quantum modality is going to win? And, you know, there are photonics, and there are trapped ions, and there are cold atoms, and there are superconductive qubits, and there are spin qubits, and then within, you know, superconductive qubits, there are fluxoniums and transmons and all this kind of stuff. And there's this sort of presumption that one of them is going to win, and it's going to be a winner-take-all. And it's funny, because you get this idea that there's this quantum religion, that people, I'm an ion trapper, or I'm a superconductive qubit person, or I'm a spin qubit person, as if somehow or other each one of them represents this thing that is exclusive, you know, and you know, all others will fail and only this will succeed. And I just resist this idea all the time and just say we need to build them all. We need to discover what they're all good at. They're all tools, and we need to figure out how to best use those tools in, in you know, whatever situation we need. And whether it's memory, or, quant or computing, or networking, or whatever it is, we still don't know. 
and it's going to take time for us to build all of these systems out and then to figure out again what is it that each system is best at but i can assure you that this is not a one will dominate and winner take all scenario uh, you just hired a system engineer and vp of system engineering yeah uh, tell me about that why did you hire that person we just hired uh shu jen han as our uh, vp of system engineering and we thought it was time to do that because we've gotten to the point where we are improving on our quantum side, on our SFQ side, on our foundry side, and we're now beginning to think about system integration. And it's having, bringing in all the disciplines, bringing them together, having a, you know, really a formal system for how we track everything and how we manage everything and how we resource everything to be able to coordinate all of those things in, in a way that we didn't have that capability before. We're now to the stage of development. We really require that capability to be integral part of our senior management team. Tell me about the remodeling of the foundry. When you have a chip foundry, it's not like you just build a chip foundry and you're done. It never works that way. You're constantly upgrading your processes, your equipment, you're bringing in new people, you have new IP, you have new customer requests, and therefore you have to you know, develop new, you know, new, new processes, etc. And so it is a constant process of evolution. You never stop. And so over the last couple of years, we've been buying new etching equipment, new sputtering equipment, and we finally got to the point where we said, hey, we need to sort of stop for a moment and look at all that we have and figure out what we don't need, what we do need, what gaps there are, what needs to be renovated. And so we are building new clean rooms. We've added new etchers. We built in a new chip inspection area and we're expanding our multi-chip module area. So all of this is in play right now. And we'll be finished you know, within the next, actually the next few weeks. Of course, just in time to bring in yet more new equipment. As I say, it never ends. Talk for a second about the renovation of this space. And you took it over. Tell me about like, how you designed it and, and what the thinking was behind, behind it. Yeah. So the space that we're in, I think in some respects, I think about it in sort of two ways. One, you know, functionally, it was meant to be able to be our headquarters and to have management and administration here, as well as where we could house our designers, etc. But more fundamentally, it's where we do all of our testing, our millikelvin testing and our 4K testing. And so we could do that in a very efficient way here with, you know, brand new equipment and uh, done in, you know, in a really well and, and efficient way. But I also think about it from a kind of almost cultural and branding perspective. You know, what are we doing in, from an architecture perspective of building a quantum computer? We're going from something which is kind of this messy labware kind of thing to something which is much more elegant, much more minimal, and you know, chip-based, all digital, et cetera. And so I wanted there to be a feeling in this place of that kind of very clean, modern design, because I think it mimics what we're actually doing from the architecture of the design of our quantum computer. When did you first hear about quantum computing and what did you think about it? For about the last 15 years in my spare time, 
I read books about quantum physics, quantum mechanics. I keep reading, it's funny, I keep reading the same history of the same history over and over again from different authors' perspectives. And so it's really in reading all of these books and trying to understand quantum mechanics and you know, quantum physics that I came across quantum computing as a thing. For a lot of those books, it was really more of a theoretical idea. It was really more like Feynman's notion about there should, you know, if you want to understand, you know, nature, nature isn't classical, you need to build a quantum mechanical computer, you know, et cetera. It's not about the reality of it, but it was more around the idea of how you could actually bring quantum mechanics to life, to make something real from it. And it goes back to when I was a child, and I used to read these books about you know, electronic circuits, and I would read them and want to make something out of it. It feels like it kind of is this bridge from, you know, from that, when I was a really little kid, to you know, books I was reading, as I said, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And my interest in working with Hypris was always in the idea of using superconductive electronics and single-flux quantum technology for advancing high-speed computing. And then when we began to realize that we could apply it to quantum computing, it kind of you know, closed the circle. Obviously, quantum computing and, and, and all the things that we do here are quite difficult. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, they? And, and it can be quite intimidating to people, right? Yeah. What would your advice be for anybody who's getting into this and feels slightly intimidated by maybe they they don't have a physics degree, you know, so, you know this can be quite intimidating, but this is how I would get get a go about it. The first thing is that if you don't have a background in quantum physics, that doesn't mean you can't be, for example, a programmer of quantum applications. And there are great resources online to be able to do that. There was a book, Jack Hittery from, from Google, wrote a really great book that I read that actually has a, an online component of it which can you know, like walk you through you know, some pretty simple quantum computing kind of application steps that are you know, pretty interesting. And there are lots of resources like that. I mean, look, if you're going to get into the, the design of qubits, you need to have a different kind of background than if you are working on, on, on applications. But I would say that the application side is really pretty straightforward way in. And, and by the way, companies like Microsoft and Google and IBM, I guess, are all trying to build you know, programming languages that are pretty easy for people who actually have you know, classical skills. So if you already have that background, I think it's should be, relatively speaking, pretty straightforward. So it's easy to get lost in the complexity and the mind-boggling aspects of quantum physics. I mean, you know, you don't have to go very far and think about, you know, quantum mechanics to start asking some really fundamental questions about the meaning of life, and you can get lost, you know, very, very quickly. What I think is exciting, though, is this idea of taking those really abstract ideas and turning them into something that's a deliverable product. That, to me, is really the extraordinary moment when you can actually take something that sounds almost crazy in theory and you're actually building something that's real. 
And when it comes to that, you begin to demystify this very, you know, confusing and, and kind of mind-blowing, uh, almost philosophical ideas around quantum mechanics. Uh, and just to say, no, we can actually make something real with this. And, you know, you can too. We talked a little bit about being an executive at a large corporation and, the, and how the approach to quantum could be. But what if you're a, a politician? Or, uh, or, you know, or a leader of a country or a region. What, how should you think about deep tech and, and quantum? So one of the aspects of quantum computing that's really important and has become more important by the year, I suppose, is quantum as a strategic technology, both for industrial purposes and let's call it industrial economic purposes, and even for military and defense and for intelligence. And what you're seeing is companies are competing to build out as quickly as they can quantum technologies uh, in communications and computing and sensing, all of which have really important geopolitical implications. And our country is doing it. We're, we're, we're focused on that as well. But our competitors or adversaries, and however you want to think about it, uh, in some cases, are significantly outspending us. They are, you know, putting up satellites for, you know, for quantum communications and run, building out networks, subsidizing huge amounts of research, and are doing, in some cases, you know, world-leading work. At this point, I'd say that the United States probably has the lead in quantum computing, but hard to say how long that's going to last. Uh, and certainly the kind of work that we're doing here is helping to push the limits of what's possible for building, you know, kind of scalable quantum computers. But it has major implications, I think, um, geopolitically. So in the past uh, little while, we've seen some sort of anti-science movements in, in, around the world. Can you talk to me about sort of the climate for innovation uh, currently? and how you feel about it, but also like what we as human beings and citizens have to do to promote a more right. positive climate for innovation. So first off, there's technology as, as it is that we depend on. And then when the supply chain gets disrupted, as is the case uh, right now for chips around the world, uh, and it's projected for the next couple of years, I mean, you'll see you know, car companies stop production because they don't have the chips that they need in order to power their automobiles. And so you can just see the leverage points that some of these have. So that's just on what exists. Now, if you think about the innovation kind of economy where you're really building out a new platform, well, if you're a power that says, we have all the capital in the world, both intellectual and, and financial capital, but we don't have a position strategically to, for example, be a leader in classical chip manufacturing, but now, hey, there's this new thing, quantum chip manufacturing. Well, maybe this is our opportunity to take that business. And I think that we're seeing this played out in a way that says that not only is it a national security issue, but it's a huge economic consequence for our economy. And you're seeing investors wanting to put money into it, but they want to put money into it because they know that the returns are potentially really, really significant and that, you know, this is going to create jobs, it's going to create, you know, whole new industries. 
and that you can't afford to become, you know, doctrinaire about uh, like an anti-science, you know, kind of background when this is actually the engine of our economy. You know, we need these kinds of technologies to keep us ahead, to migrate up the value chain, and to, and to employ people, frankly. If we don't have that, we're going to just fall behind. And we've seen it happen. So on the last note, you've worked in companies, you've built companies, you have even created a company now that uh, with your co-founders that you know, combine all these different types of uh, disciplines into a place that bubbles with innovation and, mm -hmm. and creativity. Like, how do you create spaces that, that foster that type of innovation and creativity? Whether it's a physical space or a country or a region. One of the things that I had an, a, a brief but really interesting experience working at a place called Interval Research. And this was a think tank funded by Paul Allen, run by David Liddell. And the whole idea was to invent the industries of the next 20 years. And in doing so, it was a little bit along the lines of the Xerox Park model, where you brought in people from all different kinds of backgrounds. And we had, I think we had the inventor of the laptop computer. We had people who helped to invent Ethernet. And we also had cellular biologists, dancers, and videographers. We had ethnographers working with teams developing new products. We would go in and video what people did in their homes to see how they lived, to understand how we could take those living patterns and say, what would happen if we applied computational power or connectivity in you know, the living room and came up with a whole bunch of different products. And it's this idea of bringing lots of interdisciplinary inputs and skill sets together where people can begin to question or come up with new ideas, I should say, uh, that they couldn't do by themselves. Mm -hmm.